Welcome to episode six of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. You can probably hear it, but my voice is on its way out. Hopefully not forever, but this will, I'm afraid, be the first husky-voiced episode of this podcast. I sent my children off to the Petri dish that is their school, and they came home, and we all got whatever it was that little Timmy in Class C came to school with. So if you're thinking that I sound a little bit different this week, I, in fact, do sound a little bit different this week. But I thought I would soldier on anyway and keep to the schedule. This was not something we were especially good at with Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I know the podcast has shifted around a bit, sometimes Monday, sometimes Friday, sometimes Wednesday. But my plan is to have one every single week. And so, despite the attack of the dreaded Lurgy, that's what I'm going to do. I want to start today's show by talking about something that has been bothering me since last week. Namely, the now reflexive tendency of so many in the American press corps to respond to anything that happens in the world, whatever it is, by insisting that their ideological opponents must decline to speak. I'm sure all of you by now have heard that a mentally ill drug addict broke into Nancy Pelosi's home in San Francisco and attacked her 82-year-old husband with a hammer. And I'm sure you've also heard by now that this is apparently the fault of the Republican Party for having had the temerity to engage in politics in precisely the same way as does the Democratic Party. Often, and I suspect deliberately so, this game has been played vaguely. The conclusion has been the same in every case, and that conclusion has been, people I don't like must be quiet. But the language has usually been indirect. We've been lectured about the climate, or the temperature, or our political rhetoric, all protean, malleable terms from which one can run away when challenged. In some cases, though, the argument has been made more explicitly. So a few days ago, I read a piece in the Washington Post that was written by no fewer than three people, Ashley Parker, Hannah Allam, and Mariana Sotomayor. This piece was titled, Attack on Nancy Pelosi's Husband Follows Years of GOP Demonizing Her. And it reads as follows. In 2010, Republicans launched a Fire Pelosi project complete with a bus tour, a Fire Pelosi hashtag, and images of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi engulfed in Hades-style flames, devoted to retaking the House and demoting Pelosi from her perch as Speaker. Eleven years later, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy joked that if he becomes the next leader of the House, it will be hard not to hit Pelosi with the Speaker's gavel. And this year, Pelosi 
whom Republicans have long demonized as the face of progressive policies and who was a target of rioters during the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, emerged as the top member of Congress maligned in political ads, with Republicans spending nearly $40 million on ads that mentioned Pelosi in the final stretch of the campaign, according to Ad Impact, which tracks television and digital ad spending. The years of vilification culminated Friday, when Pelosi's husband, Paul, was attacked with a hammer during an early morning break-in at the couple's home in San Francisco by a man searching for the speaker and shouting, Where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? According to someone briefed on the assault. You'll note the word culminated in that last paragraph. The argument that is being made here is quite literally the logical fallacy post hoc ergo propter hoc, which in English means after this, therefore because of this. The most famous example of that is the idea that because the sun comes up after the rooster crows, the sun comes up because the rooster crows. Now, as if to illustrate the problem, Ashley Parker, who was one of the journalists who wrote this piece, tweeted out a link to it and wrote the following. In 2010, the GOP launched a Fire Pelosi campaign with images of her engulfed in flames. In 2021, McCarthy joked about hitting her on the head with a gavel. In 2022, the GOP spent $40 million vilifying her in ads. And on Friday, her husband was attacked with a hammer. So, I would genuinely love to ask Ashley Parker and her colleagues to explain the mechanism here to me. Here are some descriptions of the suspect in this case from the San Francisco Chronicle. Most of these are either direct quotes from a woman named Oxane Gypsy Torb, who was the suspect's longtime partner. They spent, I think, 15 years together. Or they're the San Francisco Chronicle's paraphrasing of what Tor told them about the suspect. Mental illness and drug use had caused him to deteriorate so profoundly that he once grew convinced that he was Jesus for a year. He has never been able to hold a job. He has been homeless. This person really does suffer from mental illness, and that is probably why he was there at 2 a.m. He didn't know anything about politics, but came to share her fervor for many progressive causes, though Torb also espoused conspiracy theories about the September 2001 terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, D.C. I don't think he became a Trump supporter. He was against the government, but if anything, he was opposed to the shadow government, against the people who really run the government, and use politicians as puppets, like Trump was a puppet. He was once a fan of former President Barack Obama, who was more on the far left than the far right. He supported her many causes, which included protesting the war in Iraq. Now, let's assume, for the sake of argument, that recently this guy became, in some meaningful sense, a right-wing crazy. In other words, let's assume that the stimuli on which he was feeding 
ceased to be a 9-11 trutherism or Barack Obama, but right-wing ideas. How do we get from A to B? Explain this chain of causation for me. And explain how we avoid it. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Of course she's going to be vilified in ads. This election, the one we're in right now, is for control of the House of Representatives, which Nancy Pelosi runs. Complaining that Nancy Pelosi is vilified in politics is the equivalent of complaining that Donald Trump is vilified in politics, which he is, and in precisely the same way. And of course he is. And of course she is. That's how politics works. We can't decline to engage in political rhetoric on either side for either party, whatever your issue is, because some guy who thinks he's Jesus might pick up a hammer. That is childish nonsense. It is self-indulgent drivel. It is partisan corruption. Now, I can just about understand why amoral politicians might engage in it, in some desperate attempt to weaken their opponent's resolve. But the press? The press should not only have an abstract commitment to free expression. The press should recognize that it engages in precisely the sort of conduct it's now decrying itself over and over again on both the news pages and the opinion pages. Writers at newspapers, including the Washington Post, have suggested over the last couple of years that if the Republican Party wins big in the election next week, democracy is imperiled or maybe even over. Now, I don't care whether you think it's true or not. That is a serious charge, especially in a country that was founded on revolution. I happen to think that the idea that democracy is imperiled is wrong. But I have no objection to those who disagree saying otherwise. And I have no interest in silencing those who disagree with me. Does the press? It sure looks to me as if it does. At this point, I suppose I shouldn't be shocked, but I am. If you pick a story from this week, you'll see that's the first reaction every time. Elon Musk bought Twitter. My goodness, there might be more uncontrolled speech. A mentally ill drug addict committed a crime in a major city. The Republican Party must stop talking. Voters say they dislike the policies that George Soros writes Wall Street Journal articles advocating. Better slander them in the hope they'll stop complaining. It's endemic. And for now at least, it doesn't seem likely to change. Which brings me, and this time it actually does, to the first section of this week's show. My guest this week is Mary Catherine Ham, who is here to tell me about the, well, frankly, terrible way that she's been treated over at CNN. As you will probably be able to tell, the section with Mary Catherine Ham was recorded before my voice disappeared. And so instead of trying to pretend that I'm just flowing neatly into it or creating some sort of awkward segue, here it is. 
My guest this week is Mary Catherine Ham, who does need no introduction, but she's going to get one anyway, because there are presumably some people out there who don't know who Mary Catherine Ham is. Welcome to the podcast, Mary Catherine Ham. Who are you? Hey, yes, I am Mary Catherine Ham. I am a political commentator. Uh, I have been at Fox in the past for eight years or so. A lot of people know me from there. Uh, I was also at CNN and have been at CNN for the past six or seven years. And uh, I am a right of center, libertarian leaning political pundit who attempts not to be a blowhard. I have my own podcast getting hammered and I write freelance various places and have written a book about free speech called End of Discussion. With Guy Benson. Yes. And had the greatest message discipline I've ever seen, because I remember watching a lot of your interviews at the time and listening to your interviews, and you would say, you know, every minute or so, of course, in our book, end of discussion, and I stole this tactic when my own book came out. So <laughs> You must, you must. When people tune in, they need to hear the thing you're speaking about. I have had you on in part because when I started my podcast, and we've only done five episodes, people started emailing me with who they wanted to come on the show, and your name actually came up an awful lot. But specifically, I wanted to talk to you about this astonishing post that you wrote a few weeks ago on October 6th, titled, In the Age of Quiet Quitting, I Was Quiet Suspended, and I Can't Shut Up About It. And I thought, well... Uh, I don't want you to shut up about it. In fact, I want you to tell everyone about it. So I will give you the floor. You can tell everyone what happened to you at CNN recently. Okay, so I have worked at CNN since 2016. Uh, and I work on a sort of a contract basis. For those who don't know the cable news industry, uh, I started out as just a daily reporter at a newspaper and then moved up to D.C. and be sort of blogged and wrote about politics here and there and eventually made my way into the TV world. Not, not really on purpose, uh, but I didn't, I didn't crash and burn dramatically when they had me on the first couple of times. And so I built a career doing that. So when you're a contractor for one of the networks, you appear on TV for them sort of at their pleasure, uh, whenever they're looking for someone of your, uh, POV and, uh, and then you're exclusive to them. You, you don't go on. If I'm working for CNN, I don't go on Fox, blah, 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 unless I have specific permission. So that's how that works. That is my job at CNN. It remains my job at CNN. Um, but earlier this year, in, in the beginning of 2022, I noticed that I was not on. Now, this is something they can do. They can just stop calling me. Uh, I don't think it makes much sense because they pay me to do the job, so I should do the job. And also, there aren't that many of me who have my point of view <laughs> on the network. So it's, right. I feel like it's useful. Uh, but I wasn't getting on the air and I started getting sort of weirded out by it because it was, had been so long. And so I'm trying to sort of push them and pitch things and I'm not getting much. Now, and let's just give an indication for people who don't know how TV works. How often before this were you on and had you ever had a gap like this before? Okay, so in the early days of my employment there where I had a lot of fun and a lot more airtime, uh, a couple times per week, uh, easily four or five times per week. And then during the pandemic, much less, right? Like it would go to once every couple of weeks because we were all at home. They weren't using as many of us. Um, so it had fallen off, but I had never had a gap quite this long. Okay. And it was like without response, from people. <laughs> so I'm checking in about it. I'm trying to push a little bit. I'm getting nothing. And then in July, I got a call 
from someone in not a sort of HR slash management, I guess. And I thought, oh, this is it. They'll, they'll like break up with me. <laughs> like, we're just not that into you. Okay. <laughs> we'll go out separate ways. <laughs> and, uh, and instead, uh, I was told a story about why I hadn't been on the air. Now in the interim, this is from January to July of 2022. In the interim, we had gone from the Zucker era to the new era at CNN. Right. And I hadn't been really privy to any of this, like inside the building, because I wasn't there. Uh, So I'm told, okay, so what happened was under the Zucker era, you were punished because of an argument you got in on Twitter with Andrew Kaczynski, your colleague, about a about coverage of the congressional baseball shooting. Now, how is this set up? You you get the phone call, you answer the phone and they say, let me explain to you this mystery or what how does this work well the the impetus was sort of like we're gonna we want you back that was the like we want to we want to move past this and i was like wait 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 i didn't even know there was a thing to move past (laughs) so this is the explanation of the thing that in the new era we're gonna move past so it's been six months uh and i'm told that i got in this argument with Andrew Kaczynski and that that was deemed inappropriate. And then particularly when it got to my comments about Jeffrey Tubin, Andrew Kaczynski and Jeffrey Tubin, both colleagues at CNN, uh, that it was deemed necessary for everyone to have a breather because I had stepped over a line. But the problem is I was never informed of a breather. And I also dispute the idea that I really stepped over the line. <laughs> All right. So at this point, we ought to introduce Jeffrey Tubin to anyone who doesn't know him. Jeffrey Tubin is who, and you were arguing about Jeffrey Tubin because he did what? Okay. So in an argument about a separate news issue with Andrew Kaczynski, uh, he was sort of coming at, coming at me pretty hard in this in this argument on Twitter. And I noted... This, and then I'll explain Tubin. I noted, hey, wow, all this energy to come after me and fact check me. Um, here's some other people you could talk about, Tubin and Cuomo. Cuomo had, uh, Chris Cuomo had just recently left the network uh, under a cloud of scandal. And uh, Jeffrey Tubin was still there. Jeffrey Tubin was the senior legal analyst for the network. Now, eight months before this argument, Jeffrey Tubin had gotten caught on a Zoom video for his magazine job masturbating because he thought he was not on camera and he took that moment to avail himself of some other internet indulgences. And the the wires got crossed and uh, his magazine job fired him, but CNN brought him back uh, like eight months later to the air. And so I was pointing out like, maybe that's the thing you should address <laughs> online and not me. But you get a phone call that informs you that you had been essentially suspended for this incident. You didn't know you'd been suspended. So this is all news to you. Yes. And the justification is that you had criticized a colleague that the offense? Yes. So the idea was, and I know this is, the the rule is don't shoot inside the tent. Anytime you're at a network, 
you're going to run into this friction where you want to comment on something that you feel the network of, is off base on, or you want to comment on something that your colleagues are off base on. And you, you kind of, you do have to walk a line here. Now, in this case, I felt that I was being pretty calm and factual about the argument when it started, which was not about Tubin. <laughs> and then as far as Tubin was concerned, I thought, you know what, I will incur the risk because I don't think it is correct that I'm not allowed to comment on this egregious act of public sexual misconduct. Like, I, we comment on this stuff all the time. My job is to comment on national news. This became a national news story. So I'm just, like, not going to censor myself on this particular thing. So that was the, the, the contention is that I shot inside the tent. But normally you're just informed of that. We work in live TV. We, we do, we make mistakes. We make, or we, we tick people off. We make missteps. And normally you're just sort of told about it. And this time, which I'm happy to be told. And I might push back and say that I'm not, uh, I don't agree with this, but like, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, but there was no such attempt in this case. And it just sort of rode out for seven months instead. How does that seven month punishment, which sounds to me what it was, compared to Jeffrey Tubin's suspension. Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Charles. And this is really what this is really what ticked me off <laughs> most of all is that he was benched for 8 months and I was benched for 7. Right. So he started masturbating on a company-wide Zoom call at Condé Nast, I think is his, mm-hmm. his employer. And you pointed out that he had started masturbating on a company-wide call at Condé Nast, and your punishment was one month shorter than his. That's correct. Right. And in the piece, you suggest that you were told that you were suspected of being a loose cannon because you had just had a baby. (laughs) Yes. That management at the time, and that would be the Zucker era, uh, thought that... Now, it was framed that I was not told during maternity leave because, you know, I want you to just be able to spend time with your baby. Uh, but I was also told <laughs> that the management thought that I might, you know, pop off uh, if I were told this. Now, I certainly would have objected, but I probably would have just objected on the phone to whomever called me. Uh, because the way to make me a loose cannon is to just not inform me of my uh, basic employment information because of my postpartum state, and then tell me that's what you did to protect Jeffrey Tubin. So let me ask you this, because I have never understood this myself, but maybe you have a different view of this as somebody who works in TV much more than I have. I don't understand why Jeffrey Tubin was brought back. And this is not because I don't believe in redemption. It's because I don't understand what it was about him that was so special that he needed to be reinstated at CNN within eight months, having done something that I think in almost any circumstance, in any realm, would have been or should have been the end of a career. Well, I, I posit that I don't think I would have been rehabbed from this. I, I wouldn't. I mean, it, the proof isn't that I w- I'm not rehabbed from this. I'm not rehabbed from commenting on it. Um, and I just was sort of amazed that it was put to me this way. I don't, I don't know why, uh, he was brought back in that manner. I guess maybe he and Zucker were close. 
And the, the thing about it too, Charles, is that there are plenty of people who work there, uh, Laura Coates, Elliot Williams, who are uh, up and coming and legal analysts who are telegenic and great at their jobs. It's not as if there was a huge gap here. There were people who can do the job. Right. So I know you're not a fire-breathing feminist, but do you think there's a double standard here between men and women? Uh, I think this... Yeah. I mean, look, every, <laughs> every dude in the story didn't get punished with commensurate uh, or in the disproportionate way that, that I was, right? Andrew Kaczynski is allowed to come at me. I'm not allowed to come at Andrew Kaczynski. And no, I do not think that had I tubined that I would have tubined. been <laughs> welcomed back with a redemptive rehab interview uh, on the network. Nor should I be, by the way. I'm not sure. Like, but There's such an interesting raft of think pieces about how it was actually a sort of understandable what Tubin did, and I, I found that odd. I think that's completely incomprehensible and bizarre. Yeah, it was. There was this weird need for a bunch of media people to be like, "Well, you know, the blurred lines of the online workplace." And I'm like, "No, you're still making a conscious decision to do this in a workplace environment. If you were hiding under under your desk at a physical workspace, we still wouldn't say that that's okay, even if you didn't." <laughs> <laughs> you weren't caught. Yeah, and I always read these stories and I just think about how boring my life is. <laughs> I mean, if you go through some of these Me Too accounts, you know, you, you read these stories about some senior executive producer who invited an intern over to his house. And then one evening when they were having dinner, he just pressed a button and they both went down a chute into the basement and right. they were in front of a roaring fire and Barry White showed up. And you think, wow, I, I don't really have time to do it. <laughs> I wouldn't even no. think of that. <laughs> I, there have been many times in my career that I have thought if I had like a raging personality disorder and a lair, I might have been more successful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, other than that, what do you take away from this story? What's your conclusion here? Well, my concern was that we went through the whole Me Too thing, many, many, many a news cycle. And as I, I, as I said to, to CNN's face talking about this, I said, like, look, I've been asked to comment on so many episodes of sexual misconduct publicly, sometimes at the loss of some professional dignity, because talking about these things and, you know, Weinstein masturbating into a potted plant can be like a little uncomfortable in public uh, when I didn't do anything wrong. Right. Uh, I've commented on so many of these things and I just reject the idea that this is the one I can't comment on. And what I, partly what I took from me too is not believe all women, because I don't think that's a helpful standard in uh, in a society that values due process. So I came up with like a list of things that, you know, this is what makes a credible allegation because I had to do this so often. But what I did take from it, that is, it should be my job to show women who come after me that you can uh, talk about these things, that you can report these things properly and survive and even thrive. And in my career, I've reported two sort of Me Too events and did end up sort of coming out on the other side and, and being fine. And I just thought it was morally wrong to accept that you shut up about this one because your boss really liked this guy. And then you were punished for it and you're further supposed to not talk about that. I don't, I, I don't accept that. I have three daughters, and I'm not telling them that I did that. So you've 
written about this on Substack. You have talked to Megan Kelly about this. You're now talking to me about this. Are you nervous that CNN is just going to say, well, you're shooting inside the tent again, and you're out? I mean, I guess they could. That's that's part of the calculation, right? <laughs> but I just, again, I, I was given the option to just uh, put a smile on my face and come back, right? And I could have probably gotten a lot of airtime and done a lot of my job that I had been prevented from doing. And to me, uh, the cost of just doing that without, without discussing why I had been gone was, was not, didn't work for me. And I also had this, I had a concern, uh, that, you know, there certainly might be bridges burned from this, but I had a concern that many people had heard that I was banned for six or seven months and didn't know why. It certainly implies I did something terrible. So just to be clear, they called you up. They announced to you why you had been suspended, which you didn't know about. And they filled in the gaps and then they said, come back. And Mm -hmm. then you said, okay, but first I'm going to explain what you've done to me. And since then you haven't been called. Right. (laughs) And you would have been called had you not said this. Oh, I I was being called and I felt, I, I thought, very, I went through this, uh, uh, sort of wrestled with what to do because there are ways you can do this quietly, right? You can, you can sort of negotiate your way out of your contract quietly. You can, uh, quietly go back to work and quiet just was not the method that I was into. So they were like, come back, come back. And I said, okay, well, first I got to explain why I was gone. And knowing that that might dry up my opportunity to come back. Do you think this is an industry-wide problem or is this a CNN problem? No, I, I think it's an industry issue. Uh, and I think there's, look, I also sort of, there's some, there's some of this that is, there's upheaval at the network and you get sort of lost in the mix and people don't deal with smaller players like I am. Um, however, I do think it is, I'm, I try to be a reasonable woman uh, and I have attempted uh, on CNN, often very outnumbered by people who disagree with me and happy to be so, uh, to bring something to the table that mattered, that represented people who don't get seen uh, by CNN viewers that often. And I just, at the end of the day, wanted to be treated with like a 16th of the respect that say like, I don't know, like a Michael Avenatti got. Yeah. And <laughs> you get a segment Brian Stelter saying you're the front runner for the next presidential yeah. election. Like or that Tubin got, right? He he got rehabilitation and then he got his sort of uh, elegant exit and I don't get those things. And I think that is a that is an industry industry issue because the incentives in the industry are to I think too often to be a a not so great actor and that that not so honest actor and that that pays off a little more sometimes. And I don't, I don't want to be a person with like a chip on my shoulder about it. Cause I've had a good career and I had good times at CNN uh, and good exposure and enjoyed doing the job and sparring with plenty of people who were plenty kind to me. But I do think there's an incentive to, I don't know, just do what the, do what management say, what management wants you to say uh, and conform to whatever, the necessary viewpoint of the day is, and I don't do those things and I'm not, I'm not good at it and I never will be. 
All right, last question. What do you hope happens next? Do you want them to apologize? Do you want them to invite you back having acknowledged that they made a mistake? Do you feel as if you've, by telling everyone, closed this door and are ready to go back? Do you want to go somewhere else? Are you going to start your own thing? What, what, what do you hope for? Well, I mean, the thing about, and it's partly because I recognize that some of the bad incentives in the in the industry is that I always sort of have another thing. So I have a podcast called Getting Hammered. You can listen to me there where I get out all my angst that I don't get out on TV. Um, I write various places. Uh, and so I will continue to do those things. You can find my Substack also at MK Hammer. But, but look, I think in the end, we'll probably go our separate ways. I don't know if I'll be continue to be ghosted. Um, I'm about to have a baby which, you know, makes me a loose cannon. And, um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think I, I wished that I had gotten sort of a prompt apology and this treated as if it was the big deal that it was. Uh, and that was not how it was treated. And I'm not sure that's how it will ever be treated, but I had my say and that's what I wanted. And who does it serve? Who does it serve if I shut up? It serves Zucker and Tubin, who, yes, they are already gone. Like, I could let it lie. But I just didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. All right. Well, thank you for coming on here and telling your story. Glad to be here. And I, I will uh, see you guys around on the internet. You will. And now it's time for the second ever color supplement on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Jeff, have you turned on the setting? I have, but I'm having. Hold on for a second. I got to adjust the vertical. Yeah. And now I have to adjust the horizontal. Yeah. So this one's not diametrically striped. No, but you know what? It's coming in loud and clear now. Very, very colorful. That's right. This is a combination podcast. It's it's in color this part, but also it's husky. So today we're going to talk revolver, the Beatles' revolver. Giles Martin, the son of George Martin who was the Beatles' longtime producer, the fifth Beatle, some said, has just released a remixed version of Revolver. Giles Martin, before this, has done Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, Abbey Road, Let It Be, and now he's done <laughs> Not Revolver. An Not an album. That's a different topic for a different day. Now he's done Revolver, which I'm thrilled about. I thought it was going to take longer than this, because every interview I read, they said we don't have the digital separation technology to debounce the tracks, but apparently they do, because it's out. Now, before we get on, Jeff, to the remixed Revolver, what do you think of Revolver as an album generally? Well... I do not think it's the Beatles' best album. Uh, and the reason I don't think that is because I've always had a few criticisms of the first half of it, which I actually went into in great detail when we had you on a, as a guest on our show. I actually think the best single album the Beatles ever put out might be A Hard Day's Night, just for pure pop perfection. Or if you want to go for pure sprawl, I'm going to go with the White Album. But Revolver, that's the top three. Those are the top three. And listen, there's no wrong answer to this question unless your answer is help. This is the one where the Beatles completely left the live aspect of their 
their band and their performance behind and became a studio-bound creation. They actually did a tour right after this record, and it was the most hopeless tour you've ever heard. The, 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 the children were screaming all throughout the world. They could not play the new music at all. They tried to do a version of Paperback Writer, and it sounds atrocious. Then when they went to America, uh, the Klansmen were burning their records in bonfires because of some unfortunate words that John Lennon said about the relative popularity of the the Beatles versus Jesus. Um, so they left it all behind after this. But you knew it was inevitable because when you hear this album, you think to yourself, not a note of this, not one single note could ever have been re- reproduced on stage in 1966. And that's what makes it a truly special departure point for the Beatles. All right. So it was pretty good first time around. And we now have a remixed version. But before you go on, why don't you explain to them why Giles Martin said that this was not an album, despite the fact that people have been clamoring for like a new take on Revolver and a remix of Revolver. Why was this one so late in coming in this series? Well, the Beatles really had limited technology at their disposal. And I think it's worth distinguishing between limited technology and bad technology. The technology in Abbey Road, right from the beginning of the Beatles' career, was beautiful. They had beautiful microphones, they had beautiful valve-filled desks, they had beautiful instruments, and they had great technicians. But it was limited. The early recordings, they essentially had no way of of tracking. I mean, you you could run overdubs, but you, you couldn't create as we do now on almost unlimited tracks and and mix down in 1963 the beatles were recording to a two-track stereo machine which is to say everything left channel is the band and basically everything right channel is the voices plus a tambourine and that's why you're never going to hear good stereo mixes for their very early material right and and what you do in that scenario just you know as, as an aside is you bounce and what that means is you use however many tracks you have, in that case two, and then you bounce the results that you have on those two tracks down to one, and then you freed another one up. That's what they did with Sgt. Pepper, too. They just had more tracks to work with. With Sgt. Pepper, they had a four-track machine. A whole four tracks. <laughs> and so they would create these four tracks, and then they would bounce those four tracks down to one, and that would be one, and then they'd have three more to work with, and then they would take that four, and then that would be the one, and so on and so forth. And then when we talk about remixing, though, one of the problems with a remix, you can remix modern music almost endlessly because every single instrument is recorded on its own individual track, usually, unless it's a purely live performance. And even then, they're now usually recorded multi-track. You can separate out the drums from the bass or the guitar or a bad voice. You can overdub, replace, change basically everything more or less except the basic rhythm, all right? But in the Beatles' days, and certainly all the way up through 1966, it was like bass drums recording simultaneously, and that's the take, all right? You can't separate those out. If if your drums sound kind of muffled, it, it, it's almost impossible. It certainly was prior to basically 2022 to get better clarity uh, on those instruments in any sort of remix because they were joined, they were conjoined on the original track. There's no original left. And so what... Abbey Road has worked on for years is a demixing demixing software and that demixing software essentially analyzes the files once they've been digitized and discerns what is bass what is drums and 
separates out the tracks onto separate tracks so that they can be remixed. Now, what Giles Martin did not do here is clean things up. He didn't auto-tune. He didn't remove fret noise. This is all the original stuff, the original tracks. And I would say it's also an incredibly faithful remix. This is the revolver, same revolver you know and love. And yet it just sounds still quite remarkably different in terms of its sonic contours. Now, last technical introduction, Jeff, before we get on to talking about the work itself. There was a technical limitation at the time revolver was recorded and mastered and released in 1966 with vinyl. The way vinyl works, you have to be careful in how you engineer your master because if you create too much uh, volume, especially in the bass, the needle will jump out of the groove. The way you think of vinyl is it's like something moving through a canyon and then all of a sudden the canyon fills up. It gets higher and higher and there's no canyon anymore because that's the bass sound rising up, and then the needle doesn't have a canyon to move through, and it boom, and it skips the groove. And that's basically the fundamental limitation of vinyl in the 60s. And this used to annoy Paul McCartney to no end, because he was a very good bass player. And especially, I think, on this record, where they're very tight, the bass and the drums can join, which, of course, was the technical problem they were trying to solve. But... What I sense from this record more than anything else is a more prevalent bass, a bass that is present in the mix in the way that it would be had this been recorded yesterday. And when I say bass, I don't just mean the bass guitar. I mean the bass section, the rhythm section. I mean Ringo's drumming as well. I even mean the low end of the guitars. So this is the first thing you notice when you listen to this is the presence of the bass. And of course... That's not just nice sonically, but it's also great musically because more bass means more Paul McCartney. And McCartney's bass playing is half of the band. And more bass also means more drums. And on this album, As With Sgt. Pepper, Ringo plays the drums as if they were a melodic instrument. They're they're an integral part of the, the composition of the record. He's not just sitting there providing a beat or playing along according to the desires of John, Paul, or George, he is integral to the band. I was literally driving home with with, uh, my wife. We went out to a a little Halloween thing this weekend. We had a big Beatles CD on the way back home. And she just started pointing out, she's like, well, Ringo is really great on drums, isn't he? And I was like, now you get it. Now you understand, my wife. You listen to any single drum track he plays, frankly, from Please Please Me onward, there's not a misplaced note. And by the time you're hitting Revolver, if you actually study drums, he works with that palette the way you know, Picasso does. It, it, it's shocking. He doesn't play fast. He's not Carl Palmer. He doesn't play like, you know, you know, fast rhythm like fills or anything like that, nor is he Keith Moon or Bonzo. But he is an artist. So this album starts with Taxman. And I wait, think... Wait, 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 Charlie, count it in for me. One, two, three, four. <laughs> George Harrison uh, uh, complaining about the extortionate British tax rate in the 1960s, where it was, you know, at, at the highest earning level, it was a 90, was it 95% of earnings That's were right. skimmed off the top? One for you, 19 for me. Yeah. But this song, it is instantly noticeable what Giles Martin has done on this track. 
because and this is a song that is essentially invented the genre right every paul weller song can be traced back in some way to taxman yeah exactly you know start is clearly taxman <laughs> repurposed and you need the bass and you need the drums and you need that tight but broad production and it was always there. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to overstate the extent to which this has changed. But I did hear this for the first time, and I thought, wow, this is, this is clean. This is ma- magic. Why don't you give me your three or four highlights from the remixed album, and, and why? And I'll do mine afterwards. First of all, I'll start by saying that the second half of Revolver, I, I opened by criticizing the first half of Revolver. Well, keep in mind, one of the reasons why it's still their third greatest album, at the very least, is because the second side of Revolver is like the greatest side of music that the Beatles ever released, which means that because the Beatles are the greatest band ever, that, yeah, we're talking about maybe one of the greatest sides of vinyl ever crafted by human hands. And it opens with a song called Good Day Sunshine. We all know it. It's that, that happy Bobby ballad that he wrote about Jane Asher walking along, you know, in Hyde Park, you know, singing about a great day and the sun strolling along. I've listened to that song since I was 14 years old, and I never actually realized there are two pianos playing simultaneously, left channel, right channel. And I went back when I heard this remix and it came through so clearly, I went back and was like, was that, wait, wait, is that some trickery? No, it's there in the original mix. It's just buried and it's not clear and now you hear these two pianos which i assume are both paul you know overdubbing himself like duetting with one another ah, it's which george makes, martin oh it is it's are they both martin or is one of them paul i i certainly know that the solo line is martin well, I mean, it's just the most beautiful little interaction between these two duetting lines that you never really understood the interplay of until you heard it clarified in this mix. That would be my first one. I guess the second one, I would say, and I'm probably stealing some of your thunder here, Charlie, I would say it's got to get you into my life, which, of course, was already an amazing song, uh, quite possibly one of the, the two or three greatest songs on a record that, as I said, is you know, one of their finest records. But to hear the clarity with which the guitar guitars now just vibrate through in that final guitar solo and then even sort of quietly underneath underneath the horns during the rest of the song you never knew they were there before but they're there and you hear them now they're not obtrusive they don't ruin the sort of balance of the mix this is not an unfaithful remix you'll hear this and you'll hear this is the revolver i knew and loved but you hear so much more than you had ever heard before especially on that in the chromatic descent when he says Each time McCartney says, ooh, and then the bass goes down, note by note, you hear it. it it's so full, and, and the, the sound picture is complete. Now, how about you? What are your favorites? Well, I think the clarity of the strings on Eleanor Rigby is delicious. They're so crisp. They're so and clean. And they fixed that stereo panning problem, yeah, too. They did. There is a moment, for those who don't know, on the original release of Eleanor Rigby, where it just drops out in one of the channels. So if you're wearing headphones, it feels as if you've suddenly, albeit briefly, gone deaf in one ear. It's infuriating. <laughs> and it's gone now. I mean, funnily enough, my brain keeps is putting it in when I hear it. That's the other thing. The new stereo remix <clears throat> hues to what we would consider to be more of a modern stereophonic 
principles. The old kind of 60s stereo aesthetic was, this is like almost laughable, it's a cliche, it's like vocals one channel, band right channel, with like a couple of instruments maybe in that vocal channel as well to provide the the essence of stereo. This centers the vocals. So it's right there when you have headphones on or if you're sitting in the center of your speaker system, it's hitting you straight in the skull. Um, The old 60s sound and those old albums, it's just hitting your right ear. And now the, the vocals are where they should be. Paul is singing directly to you. The strings surround you. Right. And and this matters because I've seen some people criticizing this project right back from when they did Sgt. Pepper. They say, well, why are you improving on this? You know, why are you changing this? This isn't your, this isn't your job. This has been done. And I think this is a mistake. I'll tell you why. Because what Giles Martin has done, in my view, is not remix these albums. It's not change or improve or alter these albums. What he has done is create stereo mixes that follow the patterns that the Beatles deployed in the mono mixes. Because those were the mixes they spent the time on. If you look back to their production schedule, they would spend days on the mono mixes. And then the stereo mixes would be done right at the end and no one cared about stereo. And And the thing is, the stereo mixes are the only ones almost everybody in our era knows. Exactly. And so what what Giles Martin has done is say, look, at the time, it was mono that was standard. Stereo was non-standard and they didn't bother with it. Now stereo is standard. So we're listening to Beatles records that very little care was taken to assemble. So what he's done is create modern stereo mixes of the old mono mixes. And he's done it right down to the smallest details. For example, on Sgt. Pepper, on the mono mix at the end, when the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is moving into A Day in the Life, Paul McCartney is, is shouting in the background. It's not on the stereo one, but it is on Giles Martin's stereo mix because he's created a stereo mix of the mono mix of Sergeant Pepper, and that's what he's done with Revolver. So these are yeah, these are such like beautiful, faithful mixes. And, and you know, for the for the skeptics, I'd point out, yeah, you know, people were really skeptical when they announced this back in 1990, I think, that they were going to be remixing Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys for stereo because it was always mixed in mono and it was never given an official stereo mix. Um, and nobody ever wants to hear the original Pet Sounds in mono again. The stereo is definitive. It, it is, is yeah. glorious. It is perfect. And they did they did justice to that music. And they did it the way Brian would have done it back in the day, if he had had in 1966, if it had been standard at the time. It's an illumination of the Beatles. It is not a remix or an alteration. It is an illumination. It's like the cleaning of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Remember, right. it was like covered with you know smoke and you know all of that grime, and then all of a sudden the colors were brilliant again. That's kind of what it feels like. This whole remix series has felt like to me. Yeah, well, going back to the original film of a movie that was produced in 1963 and scanning it into 4K or 8K. Right, and then cleaning up all the little grain issues and You're not everything. Recutting the movie. There's no recutting no. in this. So yeah, it's 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 a clarification and an illumination of uh, I mean one of the greatest albums of all time. I want to do a couple more tracks. Yeah. Um, Doctor Robert sounds great for the same reason Taxman sounds great because it's a tight drum and bass driven song for no one. 
one of the most beautiful songs Paul McCartney ever wrote. And it's been inflated. That always felt thin to me on the original Masters. And here you hear the separation between the pianos. And I think it's a harpsichord. I think the balance on that one is a little different than I remembered it being. I actually, this is one I actually A-B'd very carefully because it shocked me how different it sounded. The only one actually that sounds to me not like it's a different song or anything, but the mix and the balance favoring the piano versus the harpsichord. It, it, it's much more harpsichord heavy, I'd say, on the original uh the, the familiar That's revolver correct. song. Uh, this one ducks that and emphasizes the piano a little bit more. So you're going to get a different sound from it. And then Here, There, and Everywhere isn't too much different because that really is a simple song. But the one thing that shines through is the harmonies. And it reminded me of the remixed Oh Darling on Abbey Road, which Charles Martin did, I think, in 2019. The first time I listened to that, oh my goodness, there's all these oohs and ahs. There's all these beautiful Beatles harmonies that just, I don't know whether they got lost in the mix first time around or they got lost in the mastering process, but they've just been nudged up a bit on Giles Martin's Abbey Road. And that's true as well of Here, There and Everywhere. They really shine through. I think we've mentioned almost every song on the actual album, aside from the single itself. So I just want to point out that that the remix is actually so good and so intriguing that it it made me for the first time appreciate Yellow Submarine as more yeah. than just an annoying <laughs> children's song. Because what it is, when you heard this song as a kid, everyone heard this song, right? You know it. It was just sort of like a big mush. Every, we all live in a Yellow Submarine. But now it actually, you realize it's just an acoustic folk song until, weirdly, the horns jump in, you know, and the band begins to play. And then center stage, all the horns come in. And then, you know, the chorus of, of the band singing, We All Live in a Yellow Summer comes in. Oh, you know what? I get it now. Maybe it swings a little bit more than it ever did before. I was thinking about that because I had, as a kid, these Beatles tapes that my dad had made me from his vinyl records. And I used to play them over and over and over again in the car until my mother would beg me to turn them off. And I loved Yellow Submarine because I was six. Just loved Yellow Submarine. And now I skip it. Even on this version, <laughs> I just skip it. Because Ringo's voice is out of tune in the first line and I just can't handle it. Hey, what would you say if I sang out of tune, Charlie? Would you stand <laughs> up and walk out No, but me? isn't it funny how I could listen to, with a little help from my friends, which I think is the best song on Sgt. Pepper, I could listen to that all day. It's a masterpiece, and he's pretty much in tune the whole way. But Yellow he, Submarine, he, he's he is perfect. Not. I mean, he's he's in tune where he needs to be, and he warbles just where he exactly needs to warble for that song. We Charlie and I are a hundred percent agreed. And this is actually a minority take. Most people will say like, "Oh, I like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," or you know, Sergeant Pepper's, or A Day in the Life. But with a little help from my friends, is the masterpiece of that album. And I think we both agree it might be the best Beatles harmony performance of all time. That's extraordinary. All right, Jeff. Well, thank you for coming on to the second color supplement. Always a pleasure. And that is all the time, well, all the voice I have left this week. Thank you to Mary Catherine Ham. Thank you to Jeff Blehar. Thank you to you for listening to me croak my way through episode six. We'll see you next week. <laughs>